0: production. Martha Beck is a Harvard-trained sociologist, world-renowned coach, and New York Times best-selling author. She is a signature mix of humour, sweeping perspective, and love. She offers up the anchoring truths about life and social evolution that has tested the metal of love in many of our relationships. Martha says peace is your home, integrity is the way to it, and everything you long for will meet you there. In this heartfelt conversation, Martha and I traverse the magic of her son, Adam, the complexity of the
1: human experience and finding true freedom. The function of freedom is to free someone else, as Toni Morrison said. And all I want is for every single scrap of life that feels separated from that love to come back into it.
0: I'm Sarah Grimberg, And this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Martha Beck is a best-selling author. Her books include Finding Your North Star, Leaving the Saints and her newest book, The Way of Integrity. At its core, this is a conversation about the search we all go on, transcending space and time to find personal meaning beyond the ego, moving through the illusion of life to find inner peace and harmony. Martha's presence is irreverent and magnetic, the truth of her word bringing tears to my eyes. May this episode inspire you to realise how powerful love is and that in every moment we all have the ability to lean into it. Martha Beck, you are an extraordinary woman and you have had a very colourful life. You
1: were <laughs> born into a Mormon family. Can you tell us a bit oh, so, about that? So, so Mormon. And it was, um, you know, back when I was born in the most Mormon city, in the most Mormon state of the United States. I can You can guess what that state is. I'll let that be a, a mystery. And I was also born into a family where my father was very prominent in the church. And I was a descendant of the pioneer families that had practiced polygamy and were like really, really into the culture. And uh, so that was just my whole life growing up as a kid. Everybody around me was Mormon. I didn't know anybody who wasn't Mormon. And uh, and then I, when I was 17, I went to Harvard, which was sort of like landing on Pluto I I just I had no cultural context it was like I'd come from a different planet so I had to learn to shift very rapidly to be accepted in this sort of materialist rationalist worldview so I, I went from this really fundamentalist religious life to a really materialist rationalist life and it really it, it did a number on me mentally and emotionally and maybe that's why we're sitting here today because it it did a number on me.
0: (laughs) You obviously were educated well. So for people that don't know much about the Mormon way of life, what was it like being brought up in that lifestyle?
1: It was very strange because, um, you know, it was like we'd spend all – Summer, uh, getting bushels of fruit, uh, you know, picking bushels of fruit um, from orchards and then canning them for the winter. And then it was very pioneer lifestyle, grinding our own wheat to make bread. And that was considered more righteous than just having bread from the store. And um, it was so it was in church, you know, like all the time, seven days a week, practically No. But many hours during the week was spent in church. And and Mormonism is what they call a life world religion in that it dominates every aspect of what you do during the day. It's not just to go to church. So it's a whole culture. And within that, my father was considered an intellectual. He was a professor of religion but he'd gotten a really good education, and he was sort of the church's go-to apologist, scholarly apologist, which means a, a scholar who defends the faith. So he was really smart. He spoke like 16 languages, and he really valued intellect in his children. But at the same time, every time we tried to, bul- to find out something that would contradict the doctrine, we had to stop. You know, it was, it was very strange. It was very mutually contradictory things happening all the time. Yeah, but I just wanted to please everyone. I wanted to please everybody that was Mormon. I wanted to please everybody in academia. And I did a fairly good job of getting a lot of approval and a really horrible job of living a life. You know, I was a complete mess by the time I was 18. So when
0: did you decide to leave the Mormon faith?
1: That did, I didn't officially leave until the year I was 29. Yes. So what I did was I tried to play both sides. Basically, like most of us, I mean, this book is about integrity. And the reason I'm writing that is because I started out wildly out of integrity. Not that I ever tried to do anything wrong or tell any lies or anything. But I left myself my sense of truth more times than I could tell you. Yes. Just to believe the stuff I was hearing in Sunday school. And then I went to a completely different culture, and I left myself again to try to fit in there. My my only real driving thing was get approval, as much approval as you can. Yeah, which is sort of it's what we're socialized to yeah. do, right? So I was um, I was pretty good at that, and I found that it's a, a quick trip to deep, devastating depression. <laughs> so um, yeah, that led ultimately to my search for happiness which culminated in my discovery after many years of education, many years of research and many years of coaching that um, integrity or being one with oneself, which is all that means. It's not a virtue thing. It's just being one with yourself is actually the key to happiness. All psychological suffering goes away when you come into complete integrity with yourself.
0: Well, that's it. And as you mentioned, you have written this amazing book, The Way of Integrity. You said that you realised that you were living a life when you were in the Mormon religion that wasn't one of integrity. Obviously, there are a lot of people that are Mormon who feel like they are living in integrity. Right. They stay there. What was it about it where
1: you thought, this is not for me? Well, I remember, for example, being a, a young child and there are adult Mormons who reach a certain status wear a certain kind of underwear. I don't know if you've heard about the sacred yeah. underwear. Um, yeah, it's kind of like a t shirt top with Bermuda shorts. It used to be like ankles and, and, and wrist. Wow. Anyway, you have to wear this all the time to keep, I don't know, evil from getting at you. And we were told a story when I was like four or five about a guy who was in World War II and he was wearing his sacred underwear. And his ship got hit by a bomb and his arms and his legs and his head burned off. But every part that was protected by the underwear was completely intact. And everybody was going, Wow, that must mean the sacred underwear really works. And I just sat there going, his head burned off. <laughs> like, what does this? Why should I be interested in underwear if my head still burns off? And that that kind of dogmatism, I remember somebody else saying that. Um, they joined the Mormon church and they knew it was true and then they broke their arm and then they went to a faith healing thing with their spouse and the faith healer came and did something and it healed the arm. So they went back to their Mormon authorities and said, this this man was not Mormon and he, he fixed my arm and they said, well, we will give you a special blessing and they gave him a special blessing and his arm broke again. Oh my God. <laughs> and it was like, if it's Mormon and it breaks your arm, it's good. If it's not Mormon and it heals your arm, it's bad. I don't understand. Yeah. Seems to me that if it heals your arm, it's good. If it breaks your arm, it's bad. Mormonism notwithstanding. So that's just the way I thought all the way through my childhood. But it was like a deep secret that I was even thinking this way. Because the indoctrination is at least it was in my case, very, very thorough at that time. I think it's less so now. But wow, at that time it was intense. When do
0: you think you learned to question things? Because it obviously is what you were doing from a very young age. And like you said, a lot of people just take what they're told and they just run with it. But you had this innate knowing that maybe what you were being told was not true.
1: Well, I did. And at the same time, I didn't let myself have that. So one of the things I ask people, I mean, if you've ever been in a really crap relationship or a really bad job, I mean, I... Sorry, this is a personal question. Have you ever had a really crap relationship?
0: <laughs> uh, I don't think I've had such a crap relationship. I've had plenty of crap jobs.
1: Okay, so the question I ask people when they're telling me I got to get out of this job or this relationship yeah. is, "What was the first moment that you felt something deep down in you thinking uh, this is not for me?" Yes.
0: Oh no, I remember I mean, that. I-, I remember. I just remember looking around, thinking, "I
1: don't think this is right." Uh-huh. And yet you stayed in the job, right? Yeah. For a while. Yes. We all do that. And that is exactly what I mean by leaving our integrity. Yeah. Because you're born with a true nature that recognizes the truth and nothing, nothing can destroy that, but we can drown it out. And the reason we drown it out, we drown out nature because we encounter culture, which just means any social pressure. And part of our wiring is to get approval anywhere we can, get acceptance, belong. So what happens is someone says, wear this underwear and it will keep you safe, except your head will burn off. And on the surface as a four-year-old, you say, okay, I am in, (laughs) I'm four. And inside you're thinking, his head burned off or you're in the job going, this is not going to work. And they say, how are you? How do you like the job? And you say, tip top, you know, like, That is what we do. We divide ourselves. So integrity just means being one thing, whole and undivided. The moment we abandon ourselves to get approval from the culture, we are now split. So we are not in one thing, integrity. We are in two things, duplicity. And it's not because we're wicked or immoral. It's because we're trying to get approval and we learn to override our basic sense of truth, which actually is the only thing that will take you to the life you're meant to have.
0: Yes, yes, that's so true. Martha, you talk in the book about your beautiful son, Adam, who has Down syndrome, who you said made you realise so much of the beauty that is in life. But you had a great fear before he was born till one night you heard an inner voice which changed everything. Can you tell us what happened with Adam?
1: (laughs) So many things happened um, during that pregnancy. First of all, from the moment, so now I'm at Harvard, I have like, I got my bachelor's, then I went back for a master's. Now I'm in a PhD program. And so I was very thoroughly like in the materialist mode. It was like, a, I got rescued from Mormonism by atheism, right? So from the moment I became pregnant, oh, and I, I didn't know he had Down syndrome, obviously, I started to have very unusual experiences, um, which I can only call psychic. And that freaked me out because this was really happening to me. And my sense of truth was saying, this is really happening to you. But according to the rules of the culture I had joined, that was embarrassing, at least and impossible by most lights, but it kept happening and it was very, very intense. And then, um, but what, what was happening? Oh my goodness. Um, My husband at the time was traveling all around the world. And if I thought about him, wherever he was, I would see what he was seeing very specifically. And and then he would call and I'd say, were you on a street with a festival with a lot of red banners? And he was like, yeah, how'd you know? You know, it just, um, I had two occasions. Once I was in a burning building and once I had a bleed out that should have killed me. And in both cases, I felt someone physical, like human hands taking care of me, but there was no one there. Like somebody pulled me out of that building. I'd gone down a staircase that was 10 stories. I was carrying my daughter. um, I was pregnant and I just, there was no oxygen at all in this. I was on the 10th floor and the fire was in the basement and the, the stairwell was acting like a chimney. So it was pitch black. Couldn't see your hand in front of your face tried to breathe in and it was just there's no air. It's like breathing water. And your chest feels like there it's full of needles. So I'm running down the stairs and I, I started to black out and I thought I'm not going to make it. And I started pushing my daughter forward in the dark so someone would trip on her maybe and yes, find her because yes. you couldn't see her. And just as I was, I was seeing stars and I was losing consciousness and somebody like grabbed me by the shoulders, picked me up and frog marched marched me down the rest of the staircase and then out into the daylight. And I was caught I, immediately. There's like, <gasps> and then coughing like massive fits of coughing. So I never saw the guy who got me out of the stairs, um, but it was on TV that night. The whole thing was on, on the news. And I watched it and it had pictures of me coming out of the smoke and there was no one with me.
0: Oh, my god! Right? That's incredible. I was like,
1: my worldview does not have a space for this. Yeah. I really, I mean, it shook me. But as a result of that fire for the smoke inhalation, they did a whole bunch of tests. And that's when they found out that my son had Down syndrome. And so it was a very late discovery. And so even though I'm very pro-choice, I was bonded to him. And I had to think, it wasn't about whether I wanted a baby. It was about what kind of human life is worth living. Yeah. And um, I thought his life would not be worth living. All the doctors told me he was like a cancerous tumor. Um, My advisors told me I was throwing away my career. And I was sitting there, I was 25 years old and I was sitting in the dark And I was thinking all these terrible thoughts. And then just this little voice from inside me started to say, are you sure? Are you sure? And it's, it made me, it was just, it stopped my thought process because it was so unexpected and so clear. And I was like, it, it just got me thinking, like, what do I know for sure? What do I know for sure? Yeah. You know, I, I thought, what, what is the meaning of life? And I thought, it's not being a Harvard intellectual. That's not making me happy. It's not making the people around me happy. Maybe joy is the reason for a life to exist in the first place. And that felt true.
0: Yeah.
1: And then I think, but he's never going to be able to be happy. Are you sure? Well, maybe he could. I don't know. You know, so it's, it started me. It stopped all these thoughts. He's going to ruin your life. He's going. You've got to put him in an institution. All the advice I've been given. Yeah all my fears and it replaced it just with this quiet way of looking at the world and going, what am I certain of? What feels true? And because of that, I chose not to terminate the pregnancy. And, um, and he's always had a lot of magic around him. Yeah. And it sort of forced me to throw open the doors of my mind so that when people said, you know, there's nothing except what, you know, we can measure with instruments. And I would think, are you Sure. so now I whenever anybody says anything I think are you sure and when I have a belief I ask myself that question and that's part of the return to integrity is that simple three-word question are you sure have you
0: had any of the psychic occurrences
1: since after you had Adam many many and the funny thing is I mean, a lot. It went down a lot once he was outside of my body. It continues to surround him in really large doses.
0: <laughs> but it seems like he's the magic that brought it to you, in to an extent. Yes,
1: it does feel like the magic. And I, I, frankly, I actually think that he at some point decided that I, that somehow I would know he had Down syndrome, so I would choose him. But he's that kind of person. He's very. He's a true gentleman.
0: Yeah. You
1: know, he's just an extraordinary human being. But he's done a lot of strange things, stuff that I mean, I've told a few people as I've been plugging the book and they ask me, like I at one point we were sitting in a group of about 10 people in broad daylight, and everybody started staring. And I looked over and Adam was sitting there with his eyes closed, with his hands about, you know, shoulder width apart with a, a glowing ball of energy between his hands. And it kept moving and changing colors and he was just playing with it. And um, everybody in the room stopped talking and watched him for about 10 minutes. And then he finally just opened his eyes inside and, and went back to normal. And I said, where did you learn to do that? And he said, gym class. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy, they, they did a unit on yoga. Yeah. And he kept doing it at home. And apparently if you keep doing yoga things like that started happening to you. He just never questioned it. So, yeah, I'm not sure of anything since he got here. Um, well, and, it sounds
0: like he could teach us all a bit about life, about being still,
1: about being in the present moment. Uh, I wish everybody could have a being like that in their home. It's a frequency that just, somebody asked me, um, I did a, an introductory book book, this launch with Elizabeth Gilbert Eat Pray Love yeah. and um, somebody asked me everything's great when you're on a book tour and life is good and you can say everything's great but what about just normal life and Liz said nah, I've been to her house it's kind of always this way <laughs> and it's because Adam says this frequency of integrity he's so completely true to himself and yeah never abandons himself and he's very gentlemanly when he declines to do something he doesn't want to do, but by God, he will not do it. Yeah. So it is, it's, it's a really, he's a wonderful teacher. And one of the things I mentioned in the book is that when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And oh, that's so true. Yeah. He was, he's one of my lifetime, all best teachers. He
0: sounds like an amazing teacher In your book, you say peace is your home, integrity is the way to it, and everything you long for will meet you there. How important is it to live a life of integrity?
1: Well, if you want to be happy, it literally is the only path because when we're split from ourselves, from our truth, Everything feels wrong. We can't find our purpose. We can't find We start behaving in ways that are meant to please others, but they abandon ourselves. And that is a kind of soul murder. And it yeah. starts to show up in it. First, it shows up as a sense of meaninglessness. Then it shows up as um, bad moods, depression, anxiety. Then it goes to physical ill health and then careers and suffer and relationships and people often develop addictive or compulsive behaviors to medicate the pain of just not quite being in the life they were meant to have. We feel it, but we don't know what it is because the culture tells us it's great. So, you know, having, having that split go on in your life and then, um, Coming back into peace requires sort of reunification, and one thing I've I've gone all over the world. I was trained as a sociologist, so I look for unusual cases to test. I, I think if I call myself a life coach, it has to, what I do has to work with everyone. Yes, it can't just be middle class Americans. It has to be people in in, in the slums of. The Philippines, I've never been there, but I've been to other slums in Africa and Cambodia, Um, talked to homeless people, talked to billionaires. And I found that one statement reliably feels deeply true to every single person, even the murderers that I interviewed. And that statement is, I am meant to live in peace. But if you say that just in your head, I'm meant to live in peace, you get this alignment. A sense of yes. Yes. It, and makes, it, it makes me want to cry.
0: It's it's the sense of that silence and the yeah. knowing that that's so true and that it's almost like it's like home. It's, it's home. Yeah.
1: So you just touched on pure integrity, which means you're not far out of it at all because if you can go there that quickly, you're doing really well. But you, you're right, it's home. Pieces are home, so I wrote this book. I didn't want them. I've written about the paranormal experiences and the psychic experiences, and unfortunately, it's brought a lot of people who are like, "Is this how I manifest a million dollars?" And it's, and they're trying to manifest a million dollars, and they're using the secret, and it should work, but it never does. Yeah, unless someone first goes into integrity. So I wrote this book because. I didn't want to confuse people and people thought I was saying that, you know, everything's magical and it's all woo woo and science is not real. And I believe in science. So I thought, I'm just going to write a book about that truth. And I really, during the writing, I got really immaculate with my own truth. And I went into this deep state of peace. And as I got there and actually throughout my life, as I've tried to get there, things that I had yearned for when I was a kid, would suddenly happen to me, like at incredible, like things that I had longed for that I thought were literally impossible. And I thought, okay, here's what I think is going on. Every time you yearn with your whole soul and heart and body and mind for something that really is meant to be yours, and you can tell because you don't want it, you yearn for Mm. it. Wanting can go any direction. Advertising makes us want, but yearning, what we think of in the night, that's from the heart. If you ask the universe for what you yearn for, the answer is always yes, and it is always delivered instantly. The problem is it is delivered to your real home because to deliver it to you in desperation would keep you in desperation. So the universe wants you to go to your home, which is peace. So when you get there, all the stuff you've been asking for is there waiting. And so all I wanted to do was go into peace and I did. And then like (laughs) objects and experiences and, and relationships and people that I had longed for in my life just started arriving like in crazy, magical feeling ways. And I thought. All I did was try to be truthful and instead I ended up in deeper in the magic than I've ever been. Wow. You've achieved so much and
0: you have such wise words. But you you've told an experience that happened to you where it was this near death experience which is mm. I mean I'll let you tell the story it's phenomenal. But there was great trauma that came out of that as well. Can you yeah. tell us about that experience and how you healed after that trauma?
1: Yeah, so when I was 29, I was, everything should have been great. I was, I had three beautiful kids. I was, um, I had a tenure track job as a professor. I was esteemed in the community and all that stuff. And I was so sad and so sick and I couldn't figure out why. So I decided, all right, all these wisdom traditions tell us that the truth will set us free. So I'm not going to tell a single lie for a whole calendar year. And I stuck to that. You know, I really, I, I try and do that all the time. Sometimes I'm not exactly perfect. but <laughs> It's that incredible
0: year, to not tell a lie for a year. I mean, even when you're just telling someone that they look nice, if, if you may think that they don't, you just want them to feel good. I mean, just I had to, to tell the truth creative. is,
1: yeah. I had to get creative about how to make people feel good without, most women, by the way, lie to make other people feel good yes. more than any other reason. Men lie to make themselves look better yes yes <laughs> it shows up in the research anyway I decided not one lie for a whole year and what that did was it very quickly got through levels and levels of, of self-abandonment that had been accruing over my whole life and I kept saying well what's true or what's truer and um, and then one day I was teaching a psychology class and the I was observing from a one-way glass booth And the conversation turned to rape. And uh, several of the women in the class talked about being date raped or having experienced some kind of sexual abuse. And I had this very strange reaction where I just felt like there were fire ants on every, every inch of my skin. And I burst out of the little booth and I fainted in the hallway. And when I woke up, um, I was being wheeled into surgery because apparently there was doctors were very worried about what was going on with yes. my body. They thought I had a really bad tumor that had suddenly like ruptured or something. So uh, I was put under general anesthesia and I was lying there and I, I opened my eyes and I sat up and I watched them operate. And then I thought, wait. (laughs) I'm lying down with my eyes taped shut. What is happening here? And um, so I lay back down into my body as very confused. And right above my face between the surgical lights appeared a, a small round sphere of the most exquisite light I have ever seen. I mean, you would call it pure white, but it had colors in it that I'd never seen before. It was unearthly beautiful and it it started to grow. And when it touched my body, it went into my body and I felt this incredible warmth and sweetness and wholeness, home, home, home. Like you said, peace, joy, bliss. It was so overwhelming. And I started to cry. um, And the surgeons saw the tears and thought that I was feeling the operation they thought I was in pain and they started to panic but I didn't care I was just I just was connecting with this light and it was it was communicating with me like heart to heart without any real words and it said a lot of things it said you're about to go through something really tough but I'll always be with you and I always have been with you Never, ever forget this. And and also, don't think you're supposed to die and go to heaven to feel the way this feels. Your job as a person is to feel this way while you're still alive. And so then I, I woke up sobbing and sobbing and everybody was trying to comfort me. I was so happy. There was this janitor... Um, mopping the floor. He was the first person I saw when I opened my eyes. <laughs> I opened my eyes and I looked at him and I said, I love you so much. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was just saturated with love. And I asked the anesthesiologist, I wanted to see the anesthesiologist, see if it was a drug effect. And he told me that when they were panicking, he went to increase the anesthesia. And he said a voice told him don't touch the medic- the medication she's crying because she's happy. And he looked at me and he said, did I do the right thing? He was just pale. He thought maybe I'd felt the whole operation. So I told him a little about what happened. And he said, do you know how many times this has happened to me in 30 years of practice? I said, no. He said, once. And he kissed me on the forehead and went away. It was so sweet. Wow. Um, so that light was... I thought I'd never be unhappy again. And the next day, well, it turned out that the surgery had been spontaneous bleeding in a whole bunch of scar tissue that I had as a result of being raped at the age of five. And I had not, I had remembered that there was something I wasn't going to remember, but I hadn't let it in. Right. I had kept it at arm's length and with the wound now open again and my whole no life thing, it came, I it went into the phase of intrusive flashbacks that comes with PTSD. Wow. So that was not fun. And it resulted in severing relationship with my very large family of origin, um, left the Mormon church formally. I later wrote a book about abuse in the church that got me death threats and threats against my children and people killing the plants in my yard and threats against my friend. Like it, it just about stripped everything out of my life, but it brought me into my truth. Yeah. And for the first time in my life, I'd been chronically ill for 12 years and depressed my whole life. And I came out of depression and all my, untreatable, incurable illnesses went away. And that was really the beginning of my life.
0: Do you think, Martha, that ball of light, of energy, told you the meaning of life? To feel like this always, you can, it's to get back to that true nature of ours.
1: Yeah, it and the... the the single purpose of my life, well, my, the purpose of my life is to be utilized in any way I can to help other people feel that way. Yeah. But for me, the one thing I always do is I try to make the choice, the choices that I make, knowing that that light is still in the room. And I, I just, I literally just walked away from everything that didn't feel like the light, my religion, my all the things I left, I left because they didn't feel like that light. And I only went toward things that felt like it. And I still do that. 30 years later, I'm still doing it. And I, I have to say, I, I get about 90% of the joy out of an ordinary day that I got when that light touched me. Oh. I, and I want everybody to feel that way. I mean, the function of freedom is to free someone else, as Tony Morrison said. And all I want is for every single scrap of life that feels separated from that love to come back into it.
0: It's so true, Martha. And I think that's what I try and help people with as well. And, you know, through this podcast and speaking to people like yourself, but it's a really interesting thing. A lot of people contact me and they're, they're making a lot of changes in their life. They're, they're having this realization that maybe their old life is not serving them and they've changed as a person and they want to move into a into maybe to be more service based and 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 to know that there is a bigger world out there and maybe not as as material based as what they were before but they find it really hard because it can be leaving friends that they've had for many years leaving partners that they've had for many years leaving yeah. jobs that they've had how would you best suggest to those people When they're in that transition period, what advice would you give them about achieving that freedom on that, what can be quite a rocky road?
1: Yeah, it it very much can be. Um, And what I would say is be very gentle and be very gradual do not decide not to tell a single lie for a whole year. (laughs) It's a bad idea. Uh, Unless you, you know, you're the kind of person who likes to jump out of planes without a parachute or whatever. (laughs) But yeah, I would say, start really gently, just taking those pauses to going by yourself and saying, what really feels comfortable for me today? What after I've been with a person, am I happier or unhappier? Mm. I, because I say this and people think it sounds like a really radical, cruel thing, but here's the statement. Integrity will give you everything you need to have the most joyful life. It will bring you the money. It will bring you the relationships. It will bring you the jobs. It will bring you the experiences. Every single thing you need to be happy, the truth will bring you, but it will cost you everything else. Yeah. And I say that to people and they're like, Whoa. And I'm saying, but do you understand? I'm saying you can keep all this delicious food, but you can't eat poison that makes you vomit on your plate. And they're like, no, I want to keep the poison. And it's because there's a part of the brain that is so frightened by anything abnormal. Yes. And, and that just means what it's not familiar with. People freaked out. My, I had So many clients freaking out with the lockdowns, right. For COVID. And, now in the U S we're starting to get a lot of people vaccinated and people are thinking about opening up and now people are panicking because they liked the way it was <laughs> like anything that says you'll have to give up. What's familiar feels threatening to parts of ourselves. And that's when we have to go by ourselves and say, are you sure this is a bad thing? Are you sure you want to keep the things that are making you unhappy? And you don't have to actually go out and stab things. You can just gently express your preferences and some things will slowly drift away. I call it one degree turns. Yeah, Like if you turned a plane one degree every half hour, you wouldn't even notice it. But after 10,000 miles, you'd be in a really different destination. So you turn gently, you turn slowly, but you just persist and persist and persist. And there will be times when, like a relationship seems to float away from you or you just drift away from a job and then one day quit. Um, But it will always, always be taking you into something better.
0: It's so true. I see it in my own life. I mean, the person that I used to be to the person that I am now. And there is, I mean, if you can make that shift, there's so much joy on the other side, but you It is stepping into that unknown territory, which is the field of all possibilities. When we're in the known, it's the repetition of outworn memories from the past. And people say that their life's boring, yet they keep rehashing the known because they're too scared to move into the unknown. There is so much freedom on the other side.
1: There really is. I based this whole book around Dante's divine comedy. And I read that whole book as a psychological map from misery to happiness. Yes. And he goes through, he has to look at all his inner demons. That's the inferno. And then he has to walk his talk in purgatory. He has to learn how to live the truth that he's discovered. And that's where he has to give up. He comes to a place where there's a gate and an angel guards the gate and says, Um, to go through this gate, you have to promise not to look back. And a lot of people won't go past that gate. And so they end up circling the mountain of purgatory. Like a lot of people who go to therapy and they get big, you know, they get clarity when it comes to actually shifting behavior. It's just too hard. So they go back to therapy and they go to seminars and they, but they never take action in their real lives that might cause them to lose anything. So I call it mourning the known misery. There's a mourning period for the miserable life that you're leaving behind. And we have to respect that. But if you decide at that point, I am going to step forward into what is true for me. And there comes a point where you can't go back. You start to grow so rapidly in joy, in connection. The beauty of the world becomes so obvious that to go back would be like trying to fit into your baby clothes, you know? It just, it wouldn't even work. And then he gets to a place where he's really, really walking his talk and he has one thing left to do and it's so beautiful. He goes into this beautiful garden and he has to be dunked twice in a river and one side of the river makes him forget everything he's ever done wrong and the other side of the river makes him remember everything he's ever done Right. And this frees him from shame, which is the deepest lie. The deepest lie is we're not good enough. I'm not good enough. And it frees him from that. And then he says, stop reading right now because you will not believe anything that happens from here on out. But it happened. And I think he had a genuine awakening experience, like as people have been having all over the world in different places. And he entered this world where he talks about, like, he says, speaking of manifesting things, he says, if you want this kind of beauty, imagine the most amazing thing that could happen to you. And then imagine something even more beautiful. And then imagine something even more beautiful. He says it three times, imagine, imagine, imagine. And then he says, now hold that beauty steadfast like a rock and it comes to you. That is how paradise works. So he's basically doing the secret <laughs> in 1320, but he, he's basing it on being, on, on freeing ourselves from our inner demons and then learning to, to act the truth we know in our hearts. And then, yeah, the magic he describes is, I don't think it's a metaphor. I think it's real.
0: You touched on shame before. why is that such a such a dark place to be?
1: Ugh, it's the original soul murder. You come out, you're a little baby. you don't even talk yet, but you know when people are happy with you and when they're not. yeah and so you begin to smile a certain way for Daddy because that makes him happy. And you try to cheer up mommy because you notice that she, because babies feel energy very yes. keenly and they know how to adapt that. They're, con, they're little adaptation machines, right? And so the very first thing you learn is, oh, I should act in a way that is different from what I feel in order to belong. And the the childlike interpretation of that, it's not verbal. It's very deep. And it says, oh, the way I am is not okay. I have to pretend to be something that's not me to be okay, to be loved, to be lovable. And the truth is you were perfect as you were and you're perfect as you are. And the more you go back to being who you really are, the more that perfection manifests, whether or not people like it.
0: It's, I mean, we kind of spoke about this earlier, but it's again, it's that whole idea of being in alignment with our true nature. How do we find our true nature when a lot of us, feel like they don't even know where it is or where it resides.
1: We have this incredible ally that will never give up on us and never cease to get our attention, and its name is suffering. Mm. And this is why integrity is the cure for unhappiness. Any kind of psychological suffering, so the feeling of purposelessness, the the bad moods, the s- physical sickness, all of that suffering is meant to wake us up and, to, and it's always going to tell you one thing. It always leads back to a place where you've betrayed yourself, where you've abandoned yourself and so that you're not one thing in integrity, you are two things in duplicity or many things, multiplicity. But um, when that basic lie explodes, the lie that you're not good enough, all that, you feel the suffering lift. Well, even when you get freedom from one little lie. Like, why did you stay in that job when you knew that it wasn't right? Like at some level you knew, but you stayed. I I think I just stayed because of the money.
0: Like to be totally honest at that time, it was the most money that I've gotten, I got paid in a role. And so I was there thinking, well, I'm getting paid good money. I should stay even though this is making me miserable. And every time I get up in the morning, I never want to go there. Yeah, yeah.
1: So you had a whole bunch of, things, convictions that came from your culture. Yeah. I got to stay for the money, even if I'm miserable. Are you sure? This is the best position I could get. This is the most money I could make. Are you sure? Um, This is the best life I could have by selling my soul and my time to this job for the money. This is going to be the best way to happiness. Are you sure? So you had suffering right on board saying, don't go to that office. Don't go there. And it was asking you to ask that question. Are you sure doing this is right for you? Because deep down, you already knew it wasn't. Yeah. And you eventually quit, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And that was a good thing. And, and you did not need that job to oh, be happy. Absolutely, absolutely not. It did not get me any further in life
0: by having that job. If anything, it woke me up to the realization that, I mean, I was very young at the time, but... Why would I stay in something like that just for the money? It showed me that that is not necessary when you are suffering.
1: Oh, my gosh. I wish everyone in the world could learn that lesson because our particular culture puts money in place of truth every time. And I remember I wrote in the book about this guy who earned $400 million in one day when his company went public. And he called me from this party. He was smashed and stoned and every form of altered And he was screaming over this rock band, it isn't effing enough. When's it ever going to be enough? And, you know, he was just like wailing. And I thought he has $400 million. And yet everybody in this culture believes that money is going to make them happy. And the, the lie and the truth, the truth is that if you have no house and you have no food, a lovely clean house and a bowl of food will make you much happier. But the lie is that 10 houses and 10 bowls of food will make you 10 times happier. They won't. So Martha, you've
0: obviously coached a lot of people who are extremely wealthy, high positions, famous, and you've seen a lot of them be extremely unhappy, as I have as well. Why do you think that we as a society then believe that all those material objects will make us happy?
1: I think it's because uh, status, wealth, and power that are wielded by the few really can make us think, you know, there really are a lot of people who have no houses and no bowls of food, right? Yeah. And so when people have, these, are like money is the way to that basic okayness. But there's also in each of us this quest for power, wealth, and status. And it manifests most strongly in people who are psychopaths. They say that at one in every 25 people is born a psychopath and psychopaths will gladly kill and destroy to get money, wealth, and power. And then they create these pyramids where they're at the top and they oppress people underneath them. And this social structure recurs over and over and over all through history, all over the world. And everybody's trying to climb up the pyramid to get that, that golden Thing at the top, you know, to be the president of the United States with a golden toilet and (laughs) naming no names. And yet, and we're all striving for that. And the people who get there are the ones who look around and go, oh, this isn't it. Oops. Mm. And then they have to go looking somewhere else. But the rest of the population thinks, oh, if I just get there, I I just, I had a client who, you know, was number one on the bestseller list, but they're like, it was only one year. If I get another year, I'll be happy. No, we just keep, when we don't know what to do, we do what we know. And this culture tells us money is everything.
0: Martha, you say every single choice is a chance to turn towards the life you really want.
1: It's not that the road is easy. It's that it feels, it draws us forward. Actually, the, the path of integrity is the path of fascination, which has been called attention without effort. And sometimes we will work, 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 like when I first got into my doctoral program and started studying social science, I was staying up nights reading extra material because I could not get enough. Mm. And then when I went to try to be a professor, I could not stand it. So I had, so the drive to go forward toward what we love, if we make a choice that takes us in the direction of our fascination and our joy, every couple of minutes, every hour or two life becomes completely different than if we just go on autopilot.
0: Yes. I know living a life where you are leaning towards the things that you, where your heart just beats when you know that you're doing something of integrity or it's just a an area that may just fascinate you and then you, then you change your career to do something aligned with that and you take the risk again stepping into the unknown to be able to to be on that path of of true joy. It's just, it's one of the best feelings that anyone can have.
1: And it's continual risk. As you said, it, it's always stepping into the unknown because nature, um, the force, the Tao, it doesn't work like a city street. You know, it doesn't work like a career the way we've laid it out. It works like a river winding through a forest. Yeah. You know, it doesn't say I'm going south now. South is what I do. Oh, now I'm going east. All right. You know, it, it winds, it turns, it gets rocky. It goes over waterfalls and our lives do the same thing. This relationship is perfect for a while. Oh, look, it's changing. Now different. Now going our separate ways feels like the right thing to do. And now now I'm going over here. And to allow things to continuously change is part of accepting the truth of this world, which is continuous change. Yes, and yeah. So the truth brings you into a relaxation into the, the river of the benevolent flow of of your life, and you can you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow.
0: None of us know.
1: That's true. No, you can do that. When I quit my university job, the guy. he said I said I have to quit he said we will give you any amount of money you want and I said I don't want money I want to quit I get sick when I come to campus I get depressed if I were to keep working I would need antidepressants and he said well I'm on antidepressants (laughs) and then he said all right you'll just quit you'll be nothing but a lowly faculty wife and I'll get tenure and He was fired two years later and I made more money as a writer than I had ever made it being a professor. And, you know, we have these ideas about the way ways things will go. And are you sure? Are you sure? Yeah. So everything is the unknown. But if you're riding the river of your truth, it's always going somewhere good. And if you get out of that truth, it's not so good.
0: It's, it's this internal compass, isn't it? And sometimes we do question it where we're like, uh-oh, I hope I made the right decision by leaving this right? or moving away from that. And then you kind oh, of get yeah. pulled back in. Uh-oh, did I make the right choice? Did I make the right choice? But you know in your heart of hearts that even if you can't see the fruits of your labour straight away, that they will be there eventually. You will, you're on a path because you can tell that that's where your soul or your heart yearns to be.
1: It will bring you peace. Yeah. It will bring you that click sense of truth that is every part of your body lining up, body, heart, mind, and soul lining up and saying yes. And if you take that pause and go away from people, even if you're making a scary choice, it will bring you peace if it's right for you. And that peace is the compass. That's, That's the North Star pulling the compass. You mentioned
0: the Tao Te Ching before, which you talk about a lot in your book, The Way of Integrity. How did that
1: book change your life? Oh, my God. First of all, I was a, a Chinese major as an undergraduate at Harvard. And so I'd been exposed to, I just was studying the language, frankly, but you can't do that without getting exposed to the philosophy as well. And Asian philosophy, unlike Western philosophy, Western philosophy says we're born imperfect and we try to strive to be better and better. In Asian philosophy, it's you're born perfect and then all kinds of gunk sort of accrues to your soul as you go through life. And your job is to clear a way to unlearn. So in the pursuit of knowledge, every day something is added. In the pursuit of the Tao of enlightenment, every day something is dropped. So as a Chinese major, I've been working, working, working. And then I run into this book. And the first time I read it, I, it literally sent this electrical bolt through my body and I'd been really sick bedridden almost for, for about I said, seven or eight years at that point. And the electricity in my system felt so strong. And I actually went out and ran through the mountains to a waterfall. I had not been able to walk without a limp for eight years Wow. and there was so much energy and I ran into a huge waterfall and i stood on i went right into the water and stood under the waterfall off to the side and that was when i finally felt like the energy coming down on me as cold water equaled the energy that was coming up like electricity from my body it just it was like pure truth hitting me in a massive dose when i hadn't been close to the truth for decades and it was like getting a huge dose of medicine that i needed And the effect didn't last. It came back later, but that definitely became my favorite book.
0: Oh, that's amazing. Martha, you talked a lot about your mystical experiences before, but what is the most mystical experience that
1: you have ever had? There are so many. You know, it's like every time I meditate, at the, by the time I finished writing this book, I was so deep into the process and I meditate every day. And I was starting to have like, as you do, if you meditate a lot, you start to have interesting experiences. And they tell you, it's just part of the process. Don't, don't pay any attention. If you have a vision, if everything seems to dissolve in light, no worries, just stay the course. Um, but I was meditating at the end of writing this. And at the very end of the Divine Comedy when Dante finally reaches the source of the universe, which is this unfolding light of incredible beauty, um, he steps toward it and he switches from past tense to present tense. And he says, I now become the love that moves the sun and the other stars. Not I became the rest of the poems in past tense. So this came into my head while I was meditating and I saw this man in profile kind of in my mind's eye and And I'd been going over and over this line, you know, I become the sun, the love that moves the sun and the other stars. And as I sat there, it was weird. It was like I wasn't wasn't seeing it, but I was seeing it. It was actually like there was something else happening in the room. And he turned toward me and he looked straight into my eyes. And I thought, oh, my God, he can see me from 1320. He can see straight into me because he's in. Eternity. He stepped into the place that is outside of time. And I felt as if the entire world dropped away. I couldn't tell if I was sitting on a chair or if I was suspended in space. And it felt like the lines of time and eternity had crossed. And it was extraordinary. I started to cry. um, And I knew. Then in 1320, he looked and saw every single person that would ever read that poem. Wow. And I was like, oh, no wonder people said it's good. <laughs> I've had a lot of experiences, but that was one of the most intense, actually. Have they changed your life? Oh, Lord, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Everything. I mean, the whole world, they they found doing a huge um, psychological study. They literally had trillions of tweets that they analyzed, and they found that people divide into two categories. One sees the the world as um, dark, inert, and meaningless. D-I-M stands for dim. And then there's this binary switch where other people see the world as safe, enticing, and alive, or S E A C. And I think the mystical experiences that I've had have flipped the switch for me. And they can actually see this in the brain, that the switch that says I'm a separate individual and I have to control everything goes off in the brain. And the part that lights up has no sense of isolated self, but sees all things as connected, feels itself connected. I don't actually feel like a human being. I feel like a consciousness being channeled through this body. And the part that it says you're in control is gone too. So I feel like the consciousness is the consciousness of love is welcome to use this body for whatever it wants. Nisargadatta Maharaj said, said it best. He said, When I look inside myself and see that I am nothing, that is wisdom. When I look around myself and see that I am everything, that is love. Between these two, my life turns.
0: Ugh. Martha, you're making me want to cry. <laughs> this is it's so because it's so true. It's it's so true. And I mean if we can if we can all just remember that and get back into that space and know in times where we're fighting for this and this person's got that and why don't we have this and I haven't achieved anything with my life. If we just remember that and and he uses a vessel of light and good and know that there is no separateness. We're all just one. I mean, our lives, our, our world would just be such a, such a, even more
1: glorious than what it is now. Yeah, I, Adam once, his, his best friend, lost his father and then his mother to cancer. And um, after his mother's funeral, Adam said to me he was about 19 he said I didn't cry mom and I said it's okay because even strong men cry at sad times and this is really sad he said and he he barely talks but he said it's not so hard after the light comes and opens your heart and I said wait a light came and opened your heart and he said yeah mm-hmm. and I said well when did that happen and he said May 10th <laughs> I was like this year he said no I was 13 so I was like when were you going to tell me about this he said he was in his bedroom and he was sad and a light appeared and it touched his heart and it brought this joy and he knew he'd be okay. He said, after that, nothing says hard. Mm. And I said, well, I've, I saw it too. And he was like, really? He was so impressed with me. Like, <laughs> um, And he, I said, you know, and, and it told me that even though we can't see it, it's always with us. Wow. And he, he looked disappointed. He said, mom, it's always, I can see it. I said you can you can see it all the time. And he said, "Yes." I said, "Well, where is it? Is it like in the ceiling? Is it in your heart? Is it in your head?" And he just shook his head and he said, "Mom, it's everywhere."
0: Oh. But isn't that isn't that so true for anyone who's yeah. listening to this now to realize that it's not special people who who access the light. Every single person Every single in this existence has the ability to access the light and the light is there for all of us it's it's infinite there's enough to go around we all have it we just need to we just need to be in true integrity and stillness i think to be able to to feel it
1: and then it's just like taking off a pair of dark glasses and seeing what you already somehow knew was there all along yeah like if when you when you do see it it's not a shock of like what is that it's like oh thank god this is real Oh, finally! And there was so much laughter for me in it because the light was saying, "You promised you wouldn't lose. You would. You said you weren't going to believe in this dark world where everybody dies, and you totally bought it." And I was like, "I know. I couldn't. I can't believe I bought that ridiculous view of reality." And um, yeah, I never want to go back again. That's for sure. But it is everywhere. It's everywhere, Martha. What is your favorite prayer? Um first it's really simple i just say the word stillness and and i go into that stillness and i can feel anything i want anything that is hurting anything it, there's something quenching there and so i can just it's like being picked up in the embrace of someone infinitely loving who knows exactly what's wrong with me yeah. and it's like a trigger word that puts me into this space of connection with it it's very, very deep stillness. And then I just ask for whatever I want. And if, if I'm in the stillness, I can't ask for anything untrue. And everything true gets delivered right away.
0: Beautiful. So, yeah. What is the best advice that you have ever been given?
1: Um, the German poet Goethe says, when you trust yourself, you will know how to live. Mm. And that's it. What is
0: your greatest hope for society today?
1: I believe that this flip from the dim world to the safe, enticing, and alive world, um, which is measurable in the brain, is what Asian philosophy calls awakening, and I think it's happened to individuals all over the place, Um, but at different times and in very localized places. I think we're on such a crash course for self-destruction that the only way we're going to exist as a species on this planet for more decades is if a critical mass of people experience this transformation. I call it the transformation of consciousness. I've been aware that that's what I wanted to help with since I was about three Mm. and obsessed with it as a child, a teenager. It was always in the back of my mind. And now I'm like old enough that I don't care what anybody thinks. I just say it straight out. And I've met a lot of other people who have the same, who feel born to serve the same mission at this perilous time in human history. I don't think any political or um, economic intervention can work unless a critical mass of people have a transformation of that kind. And then we can change everything. Yes.
0: And our final question, Martha, what is a life
1: of greatness to you? It's So I wake up in the morning, and I go over to my window blind, and I open the blind, and I look out. We live in a forest, so all around me are these huge trees. And I don't feel any sense of separation from the trees, so there's this instant... Of being the trees and of self-dissolving, but still existing as the ability to enjoy being connected to the trees. And then I go and I have a bagel for breakfast. And it's like, oh, I feel completely amazed by this bagel. I mean amazed. And the coffee, and then my family's there. And it's just, I live like a damn golden retriever. And that to me, I don't, I don't, you know, like I wrote this book, I honestly didn't think once about will people buy it. I just loved writing it. And that to me is life of greatness when you live like a golden retriever.
0: <laughs> Martha Beck, you are a glorious human being. Thank you so much you, for all, all the work that you have done over so many years. You are just a, a true soul giving us all your beautiful information thank you so much for the
1: chat today well I think you are looking in the mirror and I thank you for your wonderful presence in the world you're amazing
0: for more inspiration and wisdom I would love you to join me and my community on Instagram at a life of greatness podcast to purchase my ebook finding greatness and watch videos on this and other episodes head to sarahgrimberg.com Love what you heard? Then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg, audio producers Matt Nikolic and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast. Download the new Listener app now and listen for free. Listener.